Hello and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. This is episode 10 of the podcast, and it's part two of a series titled Deconstructing Lent, where we're looking at spiritual deconstruction through the lens of the teachings that are found in the Sermon on the Mount during this season, this Christian season of Lent that leads up to Easter Sunday. And so I have got a big old cup of coffee and a big cup of water to stay hydrated because there is a lot of material for us to unpack in this episode. So just in terms of maybe a little bit of um, a background or context here, the Sermon on the Mount, um, if you missed the last episode, the Sermon on the Mount is a particular set of Jesus's teaching that can be found in the book of Matthew in the New Testament of the Christian Bible. And specifically, it's found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. And while it's frequently been used, like frankly, a lot of the Bible has been used as a way of supporting certain religious and moralistic frameworks, I've kind of personally come to believe through a lot of research and study and my own experience of deconstruction that the Sermon on the Mount has has often been misunderstood or even misused, which again, should be no surprise because that happens a lot with a lot of the way that people tend to use the Bible. But I think if we can begin to read it and hear it within its um, specific cultural and historical and political and societal contexts, as well as its religious context, which can't be separated from those other things, we might begin to find that it can be maybe a really helpful and encouraging text for those of us who either have experienced or are in the process of experiencing deconstruction or are maybe in that kind of reconstruction phase. Now, I chose the season of Lent to do this series because for those of us who come from what I'm learning to call more accurately the Jesus tradition, I think that label Christianity has a lot of kind of unhelpful baggage. Um, but for, for people from my tradition, Lent is a season of reflection and of repentance. And as I said in part one of this series, I don't just mean repentance as just confessing individual wrongdoings, but I view it more as a way of reorienting our lives, a way of changing direction. And, and that's essentially what deconstruction is, isn't it? It's the process of reorienting from one narrative and hopefully toward a better one, toward a healthier one, toward one that's more true and more real than maybe the belief systems that a lot of us have been handed or have inherited. Also, just as sort of a disclaimer, as I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, I'm using in this series a lot of pretty probably conventional Christian language to try to unpack how we can view the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that that language can carry, again, some baggage and maybe even some triggers for some people. I also want to say that I talk a lot in this podcast series and and maybe even particularly this episode about Jewish history and context and that I am not a Jewish person. So 
while I'm trying to reflect those things as fairly and as accurately as I can, I have to acknowledge that my own understanding comes about almost exclusively from my education in Christian interpretation. So I just want you to know up front that, again, that I acknowledge those things, and I hope you can bear with me if any of that kind of language becomes troublesome for you. I'll I'll try my best to provide clear definitions for what I mean by some of that language when I use it. And there will be places where, like if you're trying to follow along in the text, you may notice that I substitute certain descriptors for God with less gender-specific and or patriarchal language. And I think you'll see that I do that pretty intentionally. But I'm sure there will also be times where maybe I'm not as clear as I would like to be. And if that's the case, I would, I would invite you to just reach out to me anytime for some conversation and clarification, and I'll give you some contact information at the end of the podcast where you can do that if you would like. So in part one of this series, which was episode nine of the podcast, we talked about kind of the backstory of the Sermon on the Mount and some of this context that we're talking about and how what Jesus in a very real way is doing is deconstructing Israel's identity narrative. And and in doing that, I believe he's also deconstructing a lot of present-day Christian mythology as well. And I use that word mythology pretty intentionally, actually, not to suggest that it's untrue or that it's just some sort of fairy tale, but I use it as a term that simply means a way that we make meaning, right? Mythology is a way that we make meaning. And that may or may not necessarily be 100% factual. I think there's a big difference between truth and fact. And, and actually, I think part of our problem in Christianity today, especially in the West, is that we too often try to conflate those two concepts of truth and fact. We have a hard time understanding that something could be true without also expecting it to be factual or or maybe historically accurate. So just to recap kind of quickly, we started off last episode talking about how at the end of Matthew chapter 4, which is a section that I refer to as the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount, The writer says that Jesus begins his public ministry with this phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And I talked a little bit about how understanding that phrase in all, again, of its cultural and historical and linguistic context really creates for us sort of a framework for how we should understand the Sermon on the Mount itself. It's sort of the key phrase that leads us into the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I would say that it may be actually the, the phrase that Jesus attempts to then interpret through the entire Sermon on the Mount. In short, just to kind of bring things up to speed, what Jesus is doing here is inviting his audience to reorient themselves to a different narrative about their identities than the narrative that they have been following literally for generations. So instead of a narrative of, of shame and guilt and power dynamics that are centered around really their religious leaders' historical interpretations of the law of Moses, which we're going to talk about in a little more detail here in a minute, Jesus is inviting people to consider that their people, the nation of Israel, has been called to a really specific 
purpose. And, and in the language of the text, that purpose is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which was kind of a metaphorical way of saying that they had a responsibility in the world to show the rest of the world that their God was different than all the other gods that all the other nations at the time worshipped. It was to demonstrate to the rest of humanity that their God, who they called Yahweh, which can loosely be translated to mean I am or I am that I am, that Yahweh was not a precocious, spiteful, arbitrary dispenser of blessings and curses, but instead was a God whose very essence, whose very identity was summed up in the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed essentially means loving kindness. And so that's who these people believed that their God was. And the way that they were supposed to do that, to show the rest of the world this hesed character of God, was to show that there was a way of being human in the world that was different than the very violent and oppressive ways of political and military might and tribal warfare that was so prevalent at the time. So, for instance, to welcome the stranger and the immigrant, to care for widows and orphans and prisoners, to show extreme hospitality to anyone who wanted it or needed it from you. Those were some of the ways that Israel was intended to live out that vocation of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so that's where we pick up in this episode of the podcast. Now, to set just a little more context, and and maybe even some geographical context can be helpful here, the place where all of this is happening is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's significant because during that time in history, Israel was under the occupation of the Roman Empire, and that specific region of northern Israel was governed by this puppet ruler, really, who was whose father was Jewish and his mother was a Sumerian woman. And this guy was named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, had this massive palace in the city of Tiberias, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, just kind of to the south and west of the towns and villages where much of Jesus's life was spent in sort of the the northwestern Galilee region. And the reason that's important to remember is because of another major influence in that region, which was a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a particular sect of Jewish people who really kind of functioned much in the way maybe political parties function today. They They had a certain worldview. They had a certain agenda based on what they believed about Israel's national and religious and political and economic and military realities of the time. And one of the things that they believed was that God would not intervene on Israel's behalf against Roman rule until the nation had purged itself of all of its unrighteousness. In other words, God would not move to help Israel until Israel cleaned up its act. And so the Pharisees embraced this very legalistic viewpoint. And anyone who didn't measure up to their high moral standards was subject to very strict enforcement from shaming to stoning and anything in between that they believed that not only was supported by their law, but was actually demanded by their law. 
Now, because the region where Jesus lived and moved around was literally in the shadow of Herod Antipas's palace at Tiberias, the tensions between the Pharisees and the Roman Empire and just kind of the common folks would have been especially high. And so the Pharisees' activity of trying to cleanse Israel of its collective sin, for lack of a better term, would also have been very high. And Jesus knows this, right? And so when Jesus delivers the lines that we talked about at the very end of the last episode about his disciples being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it's a not-so-subtle poke at the Pharisees' sensibilities. Because the Pharisees' protectionist policies would have been like salt losing its flavor or a light being hidden. What Jesus is saying is that the Abrahamic blessing, the blessing that God gave to Abraham of the nation of Israel that we talked about last time, was not meant for Israel to use for its own privilege and influence, but in order to bless the rest of the world, to show the world that different way of being human that we talked about a minute ago. But all of Israel's cultural and racial and religious identity up to that point has been formed by what they call the Torah or the law as they believed that it had been given to their patriarch Moses during what was really sort of the seminal myth of their existence as a nation, an event that we call the Exodus, when supposedly all of the Hebrew people who had been slaves in Egypt escaped through the Dead Sea and the desert of Sinai to eventually claim the land of Palestine and establish the nation of Israel. Now, there's a whole bunch of that story that we could unpack for even more context, like whether or not a single exodus of Hebrew people from Egypt to Palestine ever actually happened. Again, truth and fact are not necessarily the same thing. But for now, I think it's just important that we see it as, that we see that story, that narrative, as the beginning of the Hebrew people's formation into the nation of Israel and their collective belief that their God, Yahweh, had given them a set of laws through their leader, Moses, by which they were to govern their communal existence. And so over the centuries, they had developed lots and lots of different ways to interpret and understand and live by those laws. And even that was not without conflict. For instance, there were various ways of understanding what did and did not count as work on the day of the Sabbath, which was meant as a day of rest. That's just one example out of many ways that the law became interpreted and debated over the centuries of Israel's existence. So the law, the Torah, was sort of this central moral and social governing code of Israelite life in first century Palestine when Jesus comes on the scene. And in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is delivering that we're talking about here, it's starting to sort of sound like he's saying that the law really has no authority or purpose. And if it's not starting to sound like that yet, it sure is about to start sounding like that. And so Jesus goes about setting the record straight before he goes another inch into the sermon. He says, don't imagine that I have come to abolish or do away with the law and the prophets. Don't imagine that I've come to abolish Torah, he says. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, in, in Rob Bell's first book, Velvet Elvis, he actually has a very helpful section to help us see how that phrase, I've come 
not to abolish Torah, but to fulfill Torah, is actually loaded with meaning. And again, if we miss this context, we miss the meaning of what it is that Jesus is saying in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So in that time in Jewish history, rabbis or teachers would gather young students called disciples who would follow the rabbis, who would learn from them, and who would emulate their ways. The goal was to become like the rabbi you were following. And different rabbis had different ways of interpreting Torah, the law. And so one of the ways the rabbis would teach their students was to quiz them on how to interpret various bits of Hebrew scripture, what we in the Christian world today would call the Old Testament, and specifically the legal codes from the first five books of the Old Testament, along with some of the writings that come later of the prophets of Israel, who, by the way, just side note, were really much more interested in critiquing their current contemporary circumstances than predicting the future. But maybe that's a topic for another episode of the podcast. So if you were a disciple and you were being quizzed by your rabbi and you gave the rabbi the the answer that they were looking for, the rabbi would say something like, oh, well done, you have fulfilled Torah. But if the student gave the wrong answer, the rabbi might say something like, no, 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 you are abolishing Torah. At Accidental Tomatoes, we're building a community of people looking for ways to find faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the traditional church. While our blog and our podcast are always absolutely free, if you'd like to go deeper with more resources and conversations, we invite you to support us through the Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can receive bonus content, including a monthly newsletter, patrons-only commentary, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's telling the people that have started following him, his disciples, that he's about to give them a more accurate interpretation of their scriptures than they have traditionally been taught. And of course, the implication of that is that what they've always been taught is maybe maybe not entirely wrong, but certainly not altogether right either. Something was lacking in their understanding of their own historical and cultural narrative and the legal code that governed it. And just to sort of emphasize the point, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to tell these people gathered on this hillside in Galilee that unless their righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and their teachers of the law, they have no place in what he calls the kingdom of heaven, which Again, we talked a little bit about in the last episode as meaning not a place for our disembodied souls after we die, but a way of God intervening on Israel's behalf and of God once again taking what they believed was God's rightful place as the leader of the nation of Israel. Now, I know that a lot of people can get really tripped up right there in that section, and it's easy to see why, right? Because the Pharisees prided themselves on their righteousness. The people that Jesus is talking to, the people that he has chosen to be his disciples and the others who have chosen to follow him, would probably never have thought of themselves as particularly righteous. In fact, it's entirely possible that many of them had been accused of unrighteousness by the Pharisees themselves. 
But Jesus is making a very particular point here, although we probably miss it because we can't read what might very well have been a tone of sarcasm that his first listeners may have heard very clearly. Now, I admit that that's entirely speculative, but I think as we go forward, we can see that that it may have some merit because the entire next section of Jesus's sermon, what encompasses the remainder of chapter five of the book of Matthew is a whole litany of particular laws and how they have been traditionally understood and taught and enforced and how Jesus says they actually should be understood, right? And again, he uses a very common teaching technique that was used by the rabbis of his time. He uses this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In the rabbinic tradition, what that meant was to say, others have interpreted a certain passage this way, but I'm about to give you a better or more accurate or more truthful interpretation this way. So he says things like, and I'm paraphrasing here, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you harbor an angry thought towards someone, you have already murdered them in your mind. Or you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you lust after another, you have already done the deed in your heart. And he goes down the list, divorce, swearing oaths, taking revenge on others. And each time, Jesus contrasts the common interpretation of the law with an interpretation that goes beyond the act or behavior itself and gets to the motivations that lie behind them. So, for instance, when he says what he says about murder, what he means, I think, is that murder begins with a thought of malice toward another person. And that thought by its very nature, reveals that you have objectified that person. You have dehumanized them. You have deemed them not worthy of being alive. The line about adultery means to say that the moment we begin to objectify another human being for our own pleasure, we have in our minds already robbed them of their dignity and humanity. When he says not to make oaths, but instead to simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, he's saying you don't have to give someone a sales pitch in order to make them believe you. Just be honest and trust them to understand you. You don't have to manipulate them. That is a dehumanizing way of thinking. So without getting too much into the weeds of each of these aspects of the law that Jesus singles out for reinterpretation, we can see that the bigger canvas that he's painting on is that the intent of the law is not simply to be a behavior management program, but a way of learning to extend common respect and dignity and humanity to every single other human being without exception. He is thoroughly deconstructing their entire understanding of the very foundation of their identity. And it all ties back to the way that the whole Sermon on the Mount begins that we talked about last time, the the Beatitudes, that list of blessings for people who probably had never believed themselves to be blessed in any way. What Jesus is saying is that everyone is of divine worth. And what the law was intended to do was to help us navigate our relationships with others by respecting 
that divine worth. That's how community is supposed to work. It's how life was intended to be. But when we turn it into simple behavior control, we give ourselves the luxury of still being able to condemn other people to see them as as less than or as unworthy. We can think whatever we want about people as long as we don't actually perform the acts that we think they deserve. And if there was any doubt remaining about what it is Jesus is really trying to say, he brings it home in the very last of those you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. He says, you have heard it said that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you or persecute you. Because then you will be acting as Yahweh who is in heaven. So let's connect the dots a little bit here. Jesus is saying that we live our very best lives when we extend respect and dignity even to those that we don't believe deserve it, even to the point where we can extend it to our enemies, to those who would actually wish harm upon us or do harm to us. Because what that represents is what I believe is probably the ultimate expression of love, which is forgiveness. And Jesus is saying that that is how to emulate God. So let me let me take a little rabbit trail here off to the side for a minute to just kind of help explain that. The author of the letter in the Bible that's known as 1 John makes this incredibly bold statement that God is love. Now, if we can kind of dispense with, uh, you know, some of our preconceptions about things. Let's just imagine for a minute that if we can really believe that that's true, that God is love, and if we can believe that all of humanity and all of creation was made by, created by a God whose very nature and essence is love, it would follow that to say that we are made in God's image and likeness as the creation narrative in the Old Testament claims, what that was would mean is that we are made in the image and likeness of love. I said this one time in, I don't remember exactly the context of it, but but a colleague of mine said to me when I said this, he said, and very politely, he said that he thought it made my concept of God too small and too impersonal. But I think maybe it just reveals that our concept of love might be too small and too impersonal because what I really think that it implies is that love is the very creative force of the cosmos. And so when Jesus is reinterpreting the law for his disciples, fulfilling Torah and demonstrating how the Pharisees had abolished Torah, I think he's saying pretty emphatically that what the law was supposed to show them was not so much how to structure their behaviors, but how to go about the business of fully and authentically loving one another. And so when Jesus is reinterpreting the law for his disciples, fulfilling Torah and demonstrating how the Pharisees had abolished Torah, I think what he's saying pretty emphatically is that what the law was supposed to show them was how to go about the business of fully and authentically loving one another. I think it was probably that realization that helped me begin to move from deconstruction into reconstruction in my own life. It gave me a better story to believe in, a better story to follow, 
than the old kind of evangelical religious story of a God who wants to punish us for breaking the rules. And I think that's more or less precisely what Jesus is trying to do here for his followers. Now, this section of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew 5 ends with one more statement that I want to spend just a minute on before we wrap up this episode of the podcast. Because it's one that, if we're not careful, I think can undo all of the good reconstruction work that Jesus has done in the sermon up to this point. So, in the very last verse of Matthew chapter 5, most versions of the Bible have Jesus saying, Be perfect, therefore, as Yahweh is perfect. Or some, you know, different interpretations may word that somewhat differently. But essentially, that's the statement. Be perfect, therefore, as Yahweh, as God is perfect. This is one of those places where the English language just doesn't have a good word to reflect what the original Greek tries to get across in this text. The word that gets interpreted as be perfect is the Greek word teleos. And what teleos really means is is really less about being without error in terms of perfection as much as it indicates becoming mature or becoming complete. The original tense in the Greek also indicates that maybe a better way to interpret that phrase might be more along the lines of you are being made to be perfect or mature or complete, indicating that perhaps something might be happening to you that is beyond your control or at least beyond your conscious control. And so maybe what Jesus is saying at the end of this particular section about deconstructing his followers' understanding of the law is that if they can embrace this overriding ethos of love that he's endorsing, something transformational might begin to happen in their lives. Maybe even something transcendent. And so that's where we'll pick up next time in part three of this series on deconstructing Lent. And so that's it for episode 10 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Thanks again for listening. You can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com and across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. So please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages for up-to-the-minute updates of all of the things that are going on in our community. And we've got some exciting new stuff getting ready to come out in the next couple of months. So please uh, tune in and 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 be, um, be aware of those things that are beginning to happen in Accidental Tomatoes world. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Joe Webb Writes. If you have any suggestions or ideas for topics that we might tackle in a future episode of the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And you can contact us again on Facebook or Twitter at the places I mentioned before, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcast. That will help other people find us and connect 
with our community and participate in the conversation. And remember that you can also always support us on the Patreon platform at patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes. So keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.